At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at KeelyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I think too often in life, we take for granted to the degree that we are influenced by the people that we grow up next to, whether it's our neighbors, our families, the ladies and gentlemen we go to school with, our teachers, our parents, the examples we have in our community impact and influence profoundly the individual we become. And we're about to hear a story of that first on the negative side of that today, but ultimately, hang with me for a moment, on the redemptive side. Let me tell you about both. In 1995, a 16-year-old named Bobby Bostick was hanging with the wrong group of people and in doing so, making every wrong decision in the book. Those decisions led him to being involved with armed criminal action and robbery. It also led him to a conversation with a judge named Evelyn Baker. Convinced that he was a lost cause, she dropped a jaw-dropping 241-year-long sentence on him with parole as a glimmer of hope at the ripe age of 112. This for a 16-year-old. While serving the longest sentence in Missouri for a non-homicide juvenile offense, Bobby somehow did not crumble. Instead, he evolved. He showed significant remorse for his actions and began reshaping what future he could create for himself. Today, my friends, you're going to hear about that future. After serving 23 years of that sentence, Bobby is embracing his shot at redemption by teaching writing workshops at juvenile detention centers and using his story to mentor kids to keep them out of trouble. I want you to join me today as Bobby shares his journey in navigating an unlikely path to freedom, fostering a reconciling connection with a judge who initially sent him away, and revealing the transformative power that liberates us from the shackles of our mistakes. This is an awesome conversation. It is what turns out to be, yes, an utterly broken story on the front side, but eventually completely redempt. It's a beautiful story. So my friends, it's easy to criticize others for their sins, for their crimes, for their missteps. And yet, when we delve deeper into the narratives that precede those missteps, an emphatic heart emerges. This episode is a reminder that our past does not have to negatively define our future, and that even in the face of adversity, the best is yet to come. 
It's a message modeled by Bobby Bostic. You're about to hear it. And it's one that is open to you and I modeling in our lives. So without further ado, let me bring him on. My friend and soon to be yours. His name is Bobby Bostic. Bobby, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. It's a pleasure to be here. And my life is a living testimony of being inspired because I live inspired every day. Well, you, you do now, and yet uh, it wasn't always that way. We're going to talk about both sides of the spectrum here in a moment. But if, if you and I were to meet each other just randomly somewhere and you said, hey, man, I'm Bobby Bostic. And I said, Bobby, tell me about you. H- how would you even answer that? What I do today is I mentor youth. And the reason why I chose this route is because at, at the age of 16, I went to prison for robbery and I was sentenced to 241 years. Uh, for that robbery, even though no one was seriously injured. But my life story now is based on teaching youth in particular about my story so they won't make the mistakes I made. And adults is to tap into their childhood to find the essence of themselves that they always had. Because as a kid, we dream limited. As an adult, we somehow got bogged down with life and forgot our childhood dreams, forgot what we was born to do on this earth. Mm-hmm. So I just want to tell people Use my story as an example. If I'm doing this with my testimony in my own life, that they can do anything they put their mind and heart to because as a kid, they had those dreams and ideas, but somewhere along the way, they lost it. So I tried to tap back into that with them. So you and I grew up at the same time, just about the exact same year, only 12 miles apart, man. So we, we shared the same air during our childhood, and yet our experiences as young people were radically different. Our listeners know about my past. They know about my incredible family, my beautiful neighborhood. They haven't yet heard your past and your neighborhood and your upbringing. So I I want you to unpack a little bit of that for us today. What what was life like for you as a little kid growing up in St. Louis? Well, I grew up in extreme poverty. We moved a lot. I'm from Walnut Park area of St. Louis. My mother was on welfare. She was a single mother and four kids. Back in the 80s, welfare checks, she was like three or $400. Rent was 250 bills and all that. So we didn't ever have nothing. We had one thing, we didn't have other. We had lights, we didn't have gas. If we had gas, we didn't have light. We never had a telephone much. You wouldn't believe that some kids actually can grow up in St. Louis, in America, in the United States, and probably like a third world country, but some of us did. I don't make excuses for that because it wasn't too much to measure that by because the people around me, we all lived in object property. So it wasn't like I can go out to somebody's house in Ladue and say that these people were rich because we didn't have nothing to measure by where we lived. That was normal to us to live like that. And, it, you know, you surrounded by love, but you were surrounded by a lot of dismal, um, just gloominess too, because people was trying to find a way out the property. And the problem was a lot of us chose a negative way out the property. First with me, it was petty things like, stealing bikes and then I grew to selling drugs and then it led to me to robbing people and that was the wrong way to try to get out of property and we self-medicated a lot and that alcoholism drug addiction caused a lot of problems in my community and I feel victim to all that and not to make excuses now I see the error in those ways but that's how I grew up and that's a long story short so you said you grew up quick and you made a lot of mistakes early. And you talked about eventually becoming an author. And I, I certainly do want to talk about that. But in, in your childhood, it was the farthest thing from what you thought you might end up doing. You started smoking and drinking at age 10. Is that accurate? Yeah, uh, I wouldn't even call it peer pressure. It was just a normal graduation of events with me and my peers. 
hanging with older peers, and this is what they sat around there, drunk, smoking. They'd be like, "Hey, man, you hang with us? Here, smoke. Here, drink this beer." And it's like, "Okay, this is what we do." And now it becomes an everyday thing. Then you shifted into marijuana at age twelve, and I even read that at PCP at age thirteen. Yeah, PCP was available uh, when you smoke a marijuana. Sometimes you may not feel like you was high enough. And really what I said about getting high, we were self-medicating, like trying to escape the gloom that we felt that we didn't have no way to express or no way to vent it. And we just used drugs to self-medicate. Use drugs and you also have to somehow pay for those drugs. So you began stealing cars at age 13. When I was stealing cars, that wasn't primarily to pay for the drugs because back then, marijuana, we can afford that easily. So I was stealing cars more so for the thrill of having something like, I want a car, I want to be seen driving. Let's go over to these girls' houses. We had no way to get there, so we decided to steal cars. It's unfortunate, but that's the type of stuff we was doing. You graduated from junior high, but you, you dropped out of high school early. Yeah, I went to high school for about no more than two or three weeks. And when they were trying to get the calculation, the immunity shots, I didn't go to the doctor and I just said, forget school and then go back. So then what, man? Like one of the beautiful things about school is it keeps you occupied and growing during the day. And if you're 14, 15 years old, not going to school, what were you doing? I was out selling drugs. I was out hanging in the neighborhood over female houses, trying to live like I was grown. I had moved out of my mother's house and moved in with an older friend and I was living with him and he was 25. So whatever he did, I did. We was going to clubs going to different cities, selling drugs. Just, I was just living a wild life. And again, I'm, I'm, we're not walking through your past so people feel sorry for you, but it's it's important that they recognize the foundation that led to the decisions that are going to ultimately change your life and then eventually help redeem your life. At, at age 15, man, in the middle of this life that you're leading, your younger brother gets shot. Talk about that. Okay, my younger brother, shortly after he was arrested for a robbery or something, I got locked up. And then on the same block that I got caught, I robbed these people on, two months later, he was on the same block selling drugs. And a drug fiend, whoever was buying the drugs, tried to pull off. And the guys that was out there with him shot at the car, ended up hitting him. And he was paralyzed from that and died shortly after that. Bobby, you know, to this point, man, it's just all tragedy. Were there any positive influences in your life growing up? No, not that, no, not in my immediate surroundings. Never was. I was too far gone in pain and and just street life to even listen if if that was even around. But I don't remember no positivity around me because I felt it was hopeless. You know, I felt like I'll be dead by eighteen. So what difference do it make? I felt like just a matter of time. I felt that in my soul, like death around the corner. Well, all this is steering you toward December 12th, 1995. It's a mighty inflection point in your life. Would you just take us back to what happened in your world on December 12th, 1995? A long story short is that I'm from the north side of St. Louis. We were staying on the south side of St. Louis and just happened to be walking down the street and see people that's not from over here and over on, on this particular block. Either you live there or you coming over there to buy drugs. Nobody else come over there. And these people happened to come over there, and it wasn't even a thought about what to do. It was just an instant decision right then and there. We didn't even discuss it. I gave him a look. He gave me a look. We knew 
about to look what we finna do. And it was like instant robbery. And that robbery instantly changed my life and the guy I got locked up with. As so I'll tell y'all about what happened to him later on. But um, that day changed my life forever. I was arrested. A short time later, I went around the corner and committed another robbery and kidnapped a lady, took her eight blocks, put out her car, and I was caught in her car like 20 or 30 minutes later in a high-speed chase and I subsequently charged with 17 felonies. And from those 17 felonies, I was facing a lot of life sentences. But in my mind, I thought that by me being 16, nobody was injured or nothing like that. So I figured that the worst-case scenario, I'll probably get 10 years if the worst-case scenario. But I didn't understand that the adult system is much unlike the juvenile system. And they offered me a plea of 30 years. And to me, 30 years, that was like forever. So I was like, no, nah, I'm not taking it 30 years. And I'm going to go to trial. Not because I was innocent, but because I felt that 12 jurors would be far, more fair than the judge would. Mm. And they recommended 30 on the robberies, 15 on the kidnapping, 15 on the assaults, and 15 tens and fives on the own criminal action. And uh, there were 17 charges, and she ran each count consecutively. And tell us what that means. Just some of our, our listeners aren't tracking with what that's ultimately going to lead to. Okay. Uh, the jury recommended 30 years. I had three first degree robberies. That was 90 years right there. I had two assaults. That was 15 and 15. That's 30 more years. And then the kidnapping, that was 15 years. Three attempted robberies. 15, 15, 15 on those. And all those crimes had on criminal action. 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 5, 5, 5, 5, 5. When you add all that up, it was 241 years. When you calculate each one of those felonies I was uh, convicted of, it was 240 years. I got caught with some marijuana in my pocket. That was another year. That was a felony. So she gave me the 240 years plus the one year, and that was equals 241 years. She, at the time, her name was Judge uh, Evelyn Baker, referred yeah. to as irredeemable. This 16-year-old kid who committed this crime, 17-year-old kid now seated in her courtroom, uh, in her mind at that time, irredeemable. And so the sentence, as you just mentioned, 241 years, and the next likelihood of you even being paroled, I think you were going to be 112 years of age. Yeah, some of our last words to me was that you made your choice, you would die with your choice. Because Bobby Bostic, you were dying in the Department of Corrections. You don't go see the parole board to the year 2201. Nobody in this courtroom will be alive in the year 2201. You're 17 when you hear this, and I don't care how tough you were. What, what does knowing that you're going to die in jail do to you at that time? The day that I was sentenced, I was shell-shocked, numb. There was no future left. There was nothing ahead of me but prison. No matter how strong I am, I was just told that I would die in the Department of Corrections. Nothing in life can compare me for this. I was a walking zombie, empty. That's how I explained that in my autobiography. What's it like, man, when you get let into a, a prison for the first time, when you know that you're never going to walk out of that prison? While all of my high school peers were graduating high school, celebrating homecoming, I was being shipped to the DOC chain on the back of a bus, riding up the highway for hours, going to a rural city, headed to prison. Now, 
prison back then wasn't like it is now. Back then you had predators, waiting, sexual predators, robbers. You had dudes that wanted to take everything from you that was waiting on guys to get off the bus. Every Tuesday and Thursday, they waited on the bus. If you see that scene, Saw Shank Redemption, that's real. Those guys wait on arrivals every Tuesday and Thursday to pick out who they're going to prey on. Fortunately, not that I was tough because I was 120 to 30 pounds. I was no threat to those guys. Fortunately, I was never approached in no way. Nobody never victimized me in prison. I was only because I was blessed, not because I was tough. Because at that time, I was scared just like any other man. When you enter in prison, you don't know what you're facing. I didn't know a single soul in the Department of Corrections, but one man. But he couldn't save me in prison. Nobody can save you. It's just you alone. And here it is, you this skinny little kid. And these guys been lifting weights for years, and they've they, uh, been in prison long as you think of being born. So this is the world I entered, and I only survived by the mercy of God. Not that I was tough or I was street-wise, none of that, because in prison, what you did on the streets don't mean nothing. It's a whole different world. And I was scared. I was lost. I don't even know how I really survived, because when I say lost, it's like every step was like walking on a line, man. A land, man. I was straight, literally lost. But I somehow survived that, got through it, and persevered. What did you turn to first? Eventually, you begin to redeem this through literacy and reading and oh, writing and everything oh, else. But at, at first, what did you do? When I first went to prison, I, I got high. You know, it's like, what are, what are weed at? What are marijuana at? What a drink at? And they had that. It was readily available, just like it was on the street. All the weed I wanted, I went. I stayed high from the time I woke up to the time I went to sleep in prison. And one other thing I did do, these guys is getting high, stabbing people and all that. that, that at least they did say, man, go to the law library. We don't want to see you stuck there forever. And I, I went to the law library. And fortunately, uh, I was in the gang too. I was a blood. And so when I went to prison, I hung with the bloods. The bloods always was riding, stabbing guards, fighting inmates. Uh, it was always something going on with bloods, right? So fortunately for me, even though I was high, I was in the law library. So when the, when they shut the the yard down, when I come out of the law library, they'd be like, man, your blood friends just got into it with the police. They just uh, had a ride on the yard. And if I had been on the yard, I would have had to be in it. It's mandatory. If you out there, you in it. Fortunately, the law library trying to get out of prison did save me, even in my stupidity. The vast majority of our listeners have spent very little or no time in prison or in a jail. Talk us through a day. What's a normal day waking up in a prison for you and for the guys that you were in with? I wrote two books about prison on Amazon. One of the books is called Life Goes On Inside Prison. Inside of that book, I got a chapter called Everyday Rituals. An everyday ritual for a prisoner, especially a lifer, is real briefly, we wake up, we go to breakfast like four in the morning. Back then, you had to be on point when the doors open because you don't know what's going to happen when this door opens. It, it, it's a possibility you're not coming back to the cell. So we stepped out the cell going to breakfast ready for war. When you went to breakfast in prison, you ain't just going to eat. You may get to eat, you may not, because even if you're not in trouble, somebody may be getting stabbed, they spray the mace, they clear the child hall, we don't eat. But this stuff happens on a regular basis. The child hall where we get, allegedly go eat is where the drug deals are made at. This is where the fights take place. It's a whole different world. It's a world of may madness and mayhem. If nothing happened in that day, then we, we'll go to work. Because in prison, it's mandatory that you work. Ain't no 
I'm not going because if you don't go, you're going to solitary confinement. So if you ha- didn't have a GED, you were forced to go to school. I was forced to go to school because I didn't have a GED. So we would go to school and uh, some guys would just hang out. The guys like me, I, I studied and got my GED. But uh, after that, we go to lunch. It's the same thing. Maybe a fight, maybe a stabbing, maybe not. After lunch, we they count us four or five times a day to make sure that everybody's there. If you find a, a program or, or somewhere to go, a religious program or something to do to maintain mentally, because if not, you'll go insane. And a lot of us went to the solitary confinement a lot because it's a thousand rules and you're going to break some of those rules. And me personally, I stayed in solitary confinement a lot because I was a rebellious, hard-headed prisoner and I stayed in trouble. So I spent a lot of years in solitary confinement. That's a 24-hour lockdown in a six-by-nine cell. And I did years in there, and it was through solitary confinement that I started really getting in touch with myself and uh, that you got access to reading materials. There's no TV or radio down there, so I constantly read books. And the more I read, that's when my awakening started because I saw the world was bigger than my street corner because in St. Louis City, we limited ourselves to our neighbors. So when I read books, the world was open to me. It's like, man, you limit yourself to a neighborhood, but the world is big and vast. And now I don't need drugs no more. I got a natural high. The more I read, I need to seek hundreds of more books. And I stayed in the law library just reading book after book after book after book after book. And once I found that, then it was enough, but it wasn't enough because I couldn't answer all the questions. My mind, I got an inquiring mind. When I couldn't answer the other questions, that's when I led to spirituality. Like, it got to be bigger than philosophy. It got to be bigger than all these other disciplines. God got to be responsible for something. So let me look towards this earth. And that's when I really changed my spirituality. I had a spiritual metamorphosis in prison. And there's a saying, it's like, why guys want to go to prison and get religion? Hmm. You know why? My answer to that question is, is everything got to be took away from you. When everything is took away from you, that's when you realize it's some you need something bigger than you. You're not strong as you think you is. You're not tough as you think you is because you don't have the answers. You can't get yourself out of prison. You can't change your life circumstances. You need something bigger than you. And that's when in prison, guys like me turn to God, not out of weakness or none of that, because my first two or three years, I got high and created chaos and, and mayhem in prison. Even as a young, scared person, my rebellion wasn't necessarily because I was trying to be bad. It's like, you got to be bad in prison. If not, you'll be a victim. So it's like, I'm going to be bad just like everybody else. And you lose yourself even farther in the system. In prison, it's two things people respect the most, knowledge and violence. Wow. Everybody respect discipline in prison. In order to get knowledge and to be spiritual, you got to be disciplined. And once you make that transition of discipline and knowledge, guys respect it. Man, while while in prison, you go through this metamorphosis. You uh, also get your GED. You get an associate degree. You take over 30 rehabilitation classes and programs. You become a prolific author, man, a poet. There's a couple of poems and essays I wanted to ask you specifically about. Talk first about the the essay you wrote on the advice you would have given to yourself as a younger man. What's the essence of that article? That comes about when you sit in prison and now you're watching the news. You're calling home. they like, these kids are out of control. These kids are not listening. 
these kids are not like our generation. They different. And I look at these little dudes and I'm like, it's nothing different from them. He was doing the exact same thing 10 years ago. So now I want to get them some advice, but I, I can't talk to them directly. I got 241 years in prison. So the only thing I can do is send an essay out to various publications, Washington Post, New York Times, hoping somebody will publish this essay and it will reach these youngsters because my pen was my satellite. This was my voice to the world. So I want to write an essay called uh, Advice to My Younger Self, telling my younger self what he should do. But technically, it's to the youngsters that I never meet or never see. Yeah. So I'm telling them, like, first thing I would do is listen to my mother. That's where a lot of that, that writing come from, because you in solitary confinement with nothing but your thoughts. You got a pen and paper. And it's like, let me write this, my girlfriend, a poem. Then the second poem is called my future's hard to see. And when I wrote this poem called My Future's Hard to See, me and uh, some guys, four guys in the cell smoking marijuana, just getting high, talking about the streets. And I pull out a poem. These guys looked at me like a poem, man. We don't read poems, man. We're going to entertain them anyway, just because we all high. He must be high. Let me read the poem, man. And they like, damn, man, this poem good, man. You got some talent, man. You need to, you need to do something with that. But from that day on forward, these killers in this cell, inspired me to say, man, you can be a writer because they wasn't just playing. They were sincere. They was like, man, you straight got some talent. You need to do something with this. And that's part the seed. I'm like, man, I, I am. So a couple of days later, when I was in solitary confinement, I made a, a vow to myself to write 10 poems a day. But six months later, I get out. I got 190 poems. I'm like, oh, this is a book of poems. And then two months later, my mother unfortunately passed away. When she was 42, my mother died of cancer, lung cancer and breast cancer. And when she died, that was it. It's like, there's nothing else to live for. So it was two ways I could have went. I could have gave up or I could have tried my best to do something. And her only saying over and over again was don't give up, don't give up. And I'm like, mama, uh, uh, I'm sorry for everything I took you through. I wish I could pay you back. And she said, the only way that you can ever pay me back is to prove that judge wrong and bring yourself home. And it's like, do you owe her that or do you, is you going to self-destruct? And when I read her letters, because that's all I had left, was, was all her box of letters that she wrote. I was stuck in the cell for three or four days reading her letters. And I was like, man, I don't want nobody else to experience this, man, because these kids don't know that when she gone, that's the worst feeling in the world because you can't make up for anything you took her through. And then when you realize, I'm reading her letters, and she pouring her pain out to her son in these letters, like, uh, this is the pain that a mother go through. They sacrifice everything in the world and give it to us. And what we do, we do the opposite of what they tell them. So I'm reading this in the letters, and I'm like, man, she ain't lying. I can't give back. I can't change none of this. So let me write this book for other kids to understand, man. Your mother, is, she your first teacher. She's sacred. A man sentenced to 241 years because he was irredeemable and he would never amount to anything. He eventually begins receiving whispers that he might find freedom. What, what was it like for you when you realized, man, that it's possible I might be released? No, that took years, right? Uh, it, it's, it's a thing called hope, right? No matter what circumstances you're in, you got to have hope. Even when she told me I would die in prison, it was something in me that said, man, Nah, you, nah your, your destination is better than this. But the problem is I was lost and didn't have an idea how. Everything I could possibly file in court got denied. 
it was never no whispers of freedom. My last appeal was denied in 03. So when your last appeal denied in the Department of Correction, that's it. There's nothing else left. That the courts make it, it go to the highest court, it's denied. But deep down inside, I don't know, man. This it's a thing it's hard to explain. Wake up every day in the cell with a life sentence, uh, and you'll never get out. And it's like, how can you hope when there's nothing to hope for? Yes. Uh, you turn to books. You turn to God. You turn to faith. Uh, as the Bible say, uh, 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 faith is is belief in things, evidence of things unseen, perceptions of, of things that's, that's, that you hope for, but evidence of things not seen. You can't see a possible way of freedom when you got 241 years. You're reading all these books, but what does it mean? You ain't never getting out. You got all this knowledge, but you can't never share it with the world because you're stuck in prison with guys that don't give a crap about the knowledge and the spirituality. So here it is, you speaking this positivity stuff to people where it don't matter. So it's like, leave him alone, man. That dude be in the corner reading his books, man, because he ain't no punk, he ain't soft, he just changed his life. Let him be over there. He doing all that, writing a thousand letters, he he gets no results. So them it's like, maybe the dude crazy, man, because he go to the mailbox every day, writing hundreds of letters to lawyers, uh, state senators, representatives, churches he doing all this writing but he don't even get mailed back hmm. so it seems hopeless like but for me every rejection i get i wrote hundreds of publishers trying to get my books published i wrote hundreds of colleges trying to go to college because when i went to prison college wasn't free uh while i was in prison it was no pay grants or none of that so only way you're going to college is you got to pay for a degree it cost me twenty eight thousand dollars to get my degree now how a poor guy from the ghetto my family don't have no money. Why don't we get the education? Why don't we get some money for college for? For me, though, it was a dream. It was a desire. So every time I got money, I went to the mailbox with hundreds of letters, writing colleges, uh, sororities, different organizations, civic organizations, elk lounges, mason lounges, wherever I could write to try to, can you please help me with some money to go to college? So there was three batches of letters I was sending out, trying to get a college education, legal people trying to get out of prison and three publishers trying to get my books published. And for the first 12 or 13 years, nothing but rejection, but nothing stopped me. Nothing deterred me to say, man, just give up, stop writing these letters. The more I got denied, the more I kept trying because the more I read these books, uh, if, 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 if uh, Thomas Edison tried 10,000 times for a light bulb, if Ben Franklin can do all this before there was a post office, and when I'm reading about these guys hundreds of years ago, it's like, I got the internet. What can I not do if they did that back then? Right on. You got guys that walked over here from Africa just to go to school. Guys, they became U.S. citizens to become astronauts from Costa Rica. I'm reading all these stories. It's like people that went through concentration camps, the Holocaust. If these people can get through this, man, what can I not get through? But the evidence is you ain't getting out of prison, though. This is what the evidence say. You can do all this dreaming and reading about these guys from hundreds of years ago. It's not working, man. You Every letter you get is a denial. Every time you file something in court is a denial. But when, when something raised up in you a hope, a desire, nothing can kill it. You're just going to go until you keep going no matter what the odds is. It's like you. If I read your story about what you went through, if I look at your burns and see that you still persevering, why can't I get to what I'm going through? Why can't I overcome a drug addiction? Why can't I become a millionaire? If you can do what you're doing right now, despite what you've been through, 
this is what I'm saying. People like you, I got the example right in my face. I can't deny the evidence. You just did what you did in your life, came back from what you came from. That's true evidence. I can't deny it. So me personally, me never getting out of prison, when I go talk to these kids, they can't deny the evidence, man. This ain't happened overnight. This work that me and you doing. So when we talk to people, they feel our story. Only thing we got to do is spread the same inspiration hope that we feel, we still feel today to those people because it's in them too. They just got to pull it out because we was once lost. We was once, mm. as I said, thought I'd be dead before 18. So I understand these kids. Man, you said a lot and it was awesome. And you're saying this not behind bars, but with freedom all around you. So a man who was sentenced to 241 years is having this conversation, breathing fresh air today, which is so inspiring, Bobby. The, the work that seemed wasted while you did it year after year, decade after decade, eventually paid off. That's an entire different episode we could spend on, on the legal process to get you toward the freedom. I'm just going to begin right now with opening up those bars, though, man. You spent two and a half decades behind them. You walk out into freedom. Who's the very first person you hug? Our very first person I hugged was Evelyn Baker, right? Tell Because uh, it's been a minute. Who is Evelyn Baker? Evelyn Baker is the judge who sentenced me to 241 years. Whenever I was in prison and thought about her telling me I'm going to die in prison, it's like, man, do she know what she did, like, why would you tell a child, but you know what? I'm not gonna be bitter or nothing. I'm gonna take this energy to get out. I'm gonna see that lady one day and I'm gonna show her like, this is who I became, the person who threw away. This is the work that I had. So that motivated me to get out. That motivated me to to like do something different. I'm more than that. So my peers was over with in 03, 04. Fast forward six years later, the United States Supreme Court got out of Florida committed a robbery, and he had a life sentence. He appealed this case to the United States Supreme Court. When the United States Supreme Court ruled on any case, it, it applies to the whole country. Yeah. So by them accepting his case, saying that he was a juvenile, if you didn't kill nobody, you can't have life without in the United States. 89% of the states resentenced their juveniles that had over 60 or 70 years because the, that's the equivalent of life without. Missouri and a few other states said Bostick and these other guys don't have life without technically. So since they technically don't have life without, we don't have to resentence them. By 2013 and 14, all the other states then gave their juveniles relief and guys went home. In Missouri, I'm stuck. Fast forward to 2012, the media started doing the research on the juveniles. There's a rule in Missouri that if you have a sentence that's over 80 years, you at least can go up for parole when you're 80. That didn't apply to me because they said, okay, well, you can go up at 80 on this first set of charges, but you went around the corner and committed another robbery. That was 45 more years, so you got to do 80 plus 30 more years. Now you can go for pro when you're 112. And it's like, okay, well, this guy got more time than any juvenile in the state of Missouri, and nobody was injured. Nobody went to the hospital. Nobody was seriously injured or none of that. So why did he can't never get out of prison? Who gave him this time? Evelyn Baker. So they started doing their research, doing the stories. The media attention got on my case. They got to contacting people. People got to contact her. My lawyers contacted her and she said, okay, I want to help him get out of prison. And she then joined my defense team as an advocate. And that took, that was an 18. So BBC, Washington Post, she was all over. Uh, a lot of people, Ken Starr signed a, a letter saying I should be out. Sally Yates, so a lot of famous people, 
and hundreds of people, hundreds of ex-judges signed a petition saying I should be out. But Missouri was steadfast, like, we're not going to let them out. She kept advocating. Eventually, that led to the state legislators getting involved. They tried to pass a law. They killed that. Then they came back in 21 and worked with her in ACLU. ACLU, finally, they took my case pro bono. And then they got with Evelyn Baker, and she she advocated for four years. None of this happened overnight. She came back publicly in 18, wrote op-eds in the Washington Post, did interviews with National Public Radio all over the place for four years straight. She kept advocating for four years before a legislator, uh, a Republican out of St. Charles, came and saw me. He was behind getting the bill passed. A Democrat sponsor put it up. It passed, and they passed what's called the Bobby Bosco Law that allowed any juvenile that was under 18 to go for pro after they served 15 years. I did 26 years, went up for parole. The judge was my delegate. The victims didn't oppose. One of them wrote letters saying that I should be out. And I was given a year out date. And I've been out for a year now. Man, I just want to put my arms around you and hug you. Now, now I think I better understand why you walked to your judge who put you behind the bars for a couple hundred years and why you gave her a big hug first. I also think I understand a little bit better why she invited you and your family to spend Thanksgiving with her last year. What's it like after, as a kid, you're put behind bars, the key is supposedly thrown away, and then you have your freedom again? What, what's that first moment of fresh air like, man, the ability to go to the bathroom when you want, shower when you want, eat when you want, eat where you want, walk where you want? What is that freedom like? Nothing, uh, in the short answer, nothing in the world can, I, it's still right now today, a year later, I still live in that, in that sense of freedom that I can go to the shower without asking, without worrying about did somebody sneak a knife in the shower today. I'm free. I'm straight. The things that some people will complain and cry about for me, is like, man, you free. Do you know what freedom means? Do you know the gift that God gave us? We breathe in earth. We got life. Look at all the technology, everything that God gave us. What it is, life is beautiful. So every day it's a gift for me. Every single day, I can never not appreciate this freedom on this gift. And um, uh, as you said, I went to her house for Thanksgiving when I first got out. I went to this year again to meet her family members because stories like this don't happen every day. And it's a beautiful story and how, how that happened because not only did my advocacy get me out, it changed the law and allow other juveniles, dozens that got out dates that were never getting out, and dozens more that did have long sentences, but now they got parole dates. So just think of that a man had 241 years, which I still got 241 years, I'm on parole, but with that time and that type of dream and vision, not only did I get myself out of prison, I changed the law from prison. So mm. that goes to show you what people can do. Billionaires try to put laws on the ballot that sometimes they don't get passed. But when you got a vision, hope, look what you can do. So I'm not coming here telling these kids or these college students or these church people or corporate boardroom. I'm not telling them something I read in the book. I'm telling them something I just did with my own life. A ghetto mm-hmm. kid with no resources helped change the law in Missouri. So this guy is not just talking about something he read. He's talking about his own personal testimony and he living it. So if he can do it, what can I do? Let's wrap with that because you're talking about this from a very personal perspective and from 
the darkness that you lived for the majority of your young life, and yet it has been redeemed, and you live now fueled with hope. But you also speak into a world that lives with despair and struggle and challenge and victimhood, man. We just feel beat down by life. So for those of us right now hearing your voice and hearing your testimony and thinking, dude, that's him, but it's not me. There's really no reason for hope in my life or in my marriage or in my singleness or in my financial situation or whatever the struggle might be. What's your encouragement to them? I know what you're saying. It ain't me. It ain't me. But the thing is, we talking about an extreme situation. If I came back from 241 years, though, just think about it. I lost my mother. I lost my father, my brother. I lost all these things in prison. Wasn't ever getting out. If I did that from a cell while I was locked in solitary confinement for years, what can you not get through? If you dying, then make your life meaningful and purpose. I may live 100 years and don't accomplish nothing. You may be dying. If you determine within that year that's what you're going to accomplish, your life mean more, your short life will mean more than 100 years. So, I'm telling you that no matter what you're going through, you got to get through it. In life, we often play a victim of circumstance. Oh, woe is me. Some of the stuff is true. Some of the things we suffer, racism, poverty, systematic poverty, some of the stuff is true, right? But we can sit around complaining about the government, the system, or we can do something to change our life and people around us. Like, because some things are not going to change. Some people may want to continue to be racist. Some people may want to continue to suppress and oppress people. What they got to do with you living your life despite these barriers that's placed in front of you. Mm. I took so much, so now I'm giving back. I go into the juvenile detention centers. I teach writing workshops three times a week in three different juveniles. I talk to drug addiction people. I volunteer at these type of camps, sober living homes, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just my way of giving back and not just talking. I'm out doing the work. We all got a part we can do. We all got to give back. And when you give back, blessings going to come. Sometimes you may be broke. Sometimes you may have a bill or more that you don't know how you're going to pay. But somehow the universe and God going to bless you. Just keep doing the work. Just keep trying to help others, man. Bobby Bostick, I could spend hours just hanging out with you, man. And I look forward to someday having an opportunity of doing just that. But as we wrap up this podcast with this great man in front of me, we have seven questions that guide all of our conversations toward their conclusion. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. And the first question is going to be hard for you because you're so well read. But question number one, Bobby Bostic, is what's been the most impactful book you've ever read? It was the autobiography of Malcolm X. Wow. What was it about that book that moved you? Uh, because he lived a life that I'd lived in the streets. And then despite that, he went to prison books opened up a different world for him. He changed his life. He became a Muslim and he became an inspirational figure to try to make change in his community. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up in St. Louis that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? That's a hard question, but it's easy. But all those things I do live because that little boy, he had hope beyond hope. He wanted out of private, he looked at the world and wondered why it was. He questioned things. I'm him. Mm. Man, if, you, if your home caught fire and all living things were out and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, what's that one thing you would come racing back outside with? My mother's picture. Mm. And the reason that is because if I can look in those eyes, those eyes tell me, boy, you better keep going. You better start over, get some new clothes, build a new house. Her eyes going to tell me to never give up. And with that, then that's all I need. Mm. 
If, if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? It would have to be a prophet because I want to ask them why did God show them what they showed them and what did they learn from what God showed them? Because in the end, to answer all your questions, it, it all is going to come back to God for me because even though I don't get spiritual all the time, I'm not making this spiritual, but that's what it's going to come back to for me. So those spiritual foundations and principles is what I'm always need and look forward to. What's the best advice you've ever received? Listen to my mother mm -hmm. because she that first teacher and it's a, a maternal instinct that they got that's given to them by God. What would you tell your 20 year old self? Keep dreaming, keep dreaming mm. because you own something. Finally, Bobby Bostic, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? He, a lost soul that once found himself, God gave him a certain call and he followed it. Bobby Bostic, you were indeed a lost soul, and God has given you a calling, and you have indeed followed it, and you've inspired the rest of us to follow our calling and to remain hopeful that the best is yet to come. I want to thank you, man, for learning from your mistakes, for doing better, and for reminding the rest of us that we can do so, too. All right, thank you, and I appreciate this opportunity. So, my friends, that is Bobby Bostic. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. You're free. Live inspired. Well, my friends, I told you on the front side of the conversation, you were going to love the conversation with Bobby Bostic, and ultimately, you were going to love the man of Bobby Bostic. If, like me, you believe entire communities, and indeed the world, can be changed and transformed and elevated and redeemed one life at a time, well, you're going to love the impact being made through the work of Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and the former leader, executive director of that organization, She's a dear friend of mine. Her name is Becky James Hatter. As the former and longtime president of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Eastern Missouri, Becky helped propel a struggling program with a small budget and a goal of serving 300 young people into a thriving organization serving almost 10,000 young people and their families. It's an incredible conversation that will spark unity and possibility and offer you concrete ways to be a change agent for good in your community. Listen to Becky James Hatter on our Live Inspired podcast, episode 59, or by letting your fingers do the walk-in by cruising with me right now over to the website. And that website is johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. You know, I love you. You know, there's nothing that you can do about that. And you know that I and our entire organization are grateful every time you tune in and you share the impact of the effect of these podcasts on your life. So we're grateful for you. And what we collectively know is that the foundation is firm. The headwinds may be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary and today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment 
create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com.